Last week, we took a little time out from the cycle of readings for this part of the green season in year B, where we've been reading from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, and now today, the conclusion of the book of Job. But last week, we talked about our patron, St. Luke, and I just want to mention that it's important for us to uh, hold close to our hearts uh, the, thing, the themes from last week about St. Luke, our patron, and, and what it means. Uh, first of all, that you and I are part of God's plan for the creation. Somehow we're needed in this process. We are the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. We, have, we begin to understand that as we read from the Bible, the history of salvation, that also our own personal history is tied up with the history of salvation. And that you and I can be in our instruments of healing and wholeness uh, as we seek to bring health and wholeness in our relational life with those nearest and dearest and with others as well. Today I want to preach about the conclusion uh, from the book of Job where Job is restored. And in the gospel from Mark we have a healing story where the blind man Bartimaeus is healed by Jesus. Um, it might be interesting to, to uh, reflect on the fact that it's entirely possible that Bartimaeus and his parents, son of Timaeus, were early followers of Jesus, and that's why they're mentioned in this gospel, which is the earliest of the gospels. So they're mentioned by name, not merely just a blind man, but they give us his name. So let me talk about the book of Job. Job is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Prior to reading from Job, we read from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is the oldest piece of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And its major contribution to the understanding of certainly wisdom in the ancient Near East uh, is the view that the circumstances in which we find ourselves, whether they be positive or negative, are the result of our own making. So in one sense, it, it calls us to have a little uh, internal and external conversation about uh, is really everything that we find, a circumstance we find ourselves in uh, of our own making? Because for the last few weeks, we have been reading from the book of Job, which is a little later than the book of Proverbs, and it's about somebody who is smitten with suffering and adversity through no fault of his own, and in fact is a righteous man. So how do we make sense of that, particularly because the book begins by telling us that Job is sm smitten by God because he has a bet with Satan that he can get Job to curse him. So the whole of the book of Job has something to do with a conversation about the nature of God and how do we understand God. When we first read about this, it raised the question for us, is God capricious? Does God act in a whimsical way with people and cause them great suffering and adversity? because it's a whim to do this. The next week we read from Job again in the midst of his suffering and despair. 
And he's asking the question, is God hidden from me? And many of us might ask that when we're going through great difficulty. Is God somehow hidden from me or removed from me or doesn't care about me? And today in the reading, we have a reading about the sovereignty of God and how we might understand the sovereignty of God, that God does what God wants. It's about the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. I have to tell you personally that in my life, I've had a great struggle with being resentful and upset because I am not omniscient, omnipotent, and immortal. I don't know whether any of you have ever had that difficulty, but I certainly have, and it comes back from time to time. But today we're talking about God's omniscience, and Job speaks today, he apologizes, and in some way acknowledges God's sovereignty, because he's saying, I just don't know the full extent of the, your, the way you work, but he does not apologize for the wrestling with God that has been the substance of the book of Job. And this book is very Jewish. It's about wrestling with God. I wish more Christian people would be interested in wrestling with God and probably would do us some good. You know, a conversation, a struggle with God's purposes and whether they're the right ones and how do we know which ones they are. So he apologizes for not knowing this, but he doesn't apologize for having the conversation. Job is restored double. And it might interest you to know that in the ancient Near East, that was the practice. If a person had all of their possessions taken from them, if they, if they received rest, restitution, it was double. They received twice over what they had taken away from them or what they lost. So Job, according to the custom of the period, did in fact receive everything twice over. And it says to us that somehow um, he lived after that 140 years. My Old Testament teacher at Neshota House said, well, you can believe that if you want to. Job's daughters are the most beautiful daughters in the whole of the situation there. Now we have to not, we have, can't leave this without saying that when God smote Job, he killed all his other daughters. His whole family died. So the conversation that you and I need to have is, is that the kind of God that we believe in? And when we believe in the sovereignty of God, do we mean that God is capable and able to inflict on the human race anything he chooses to do because it serves his purposes about which we know nothing? Do we believe in a God like that? There's a preacher, uh, I keep talking about this, and you must think that all I do is sit around watching YouTube videos. <laughs> There's a big church in Minneapolis called Bethlehem Baptist Church, and the pastor is a guy named John Piper, who's famous in evangelical circles. He is a Reformed Baptist, which means he is a Baptist who is a Calvinist. 
which is, uh, actually exists. Most Baptists are not Calvinists. They're Arminians, but let's not go there. You want to know what Arminian means? Ask me at the door, and I'll just try to give you a one-sentence uh, definition. But he's a Calvinist, and in an interview I saw with him, he said, God even controls the dust motes. That ought to make you, you lazy housekeepers feel better. <laughs> so do we believe in a God who's capricious? Do we believe in the sovereignty of God, meaning God gets to do whatever he wants? How do we know what the source of all this suffering and difficulty is? How much of it is of, of our own making? What sense are we to make out of all this? And you know what? I don't have an answer for you. I'm inviting you into this conversation about the nature of God and how we think about God and how God operates uh, in our lives. I do not believe that God is capricious, and I believe what I preach to you all the time, and that is that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us, and that we have been in no uh, amount of difficult, no small amount of difficulty over time for the misinterpretation of this sort of pervasive sovereignty of God who knows what I'm doing every moment of, of, of my day, every second. You know, it's always a great comfort, isn't it, when you have something good happen, then you can attribute it to God. I mean, think of the giants. You know, I mean, we had several players on the team last night say, it is God who has made us now 3-0. and Right? In this particular case, that may be true. So I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to throw cold water on, on that particular thing. Right? In the public discourse in the last two weeks, we had a political candidate in this country get up and say that uh, it is God's will for someone to be raped, and because of the consequence of the rape, they must bear the child. Is that the kind of God you believe in? Do you want to make public policy around that kind of belief? So you and I need to do a big think on what we mean about the sovereignty of God. You know? I believe personally it, that Jesus Christ is my greatest place of safety and assurance and that he represents for humanity the unique focus of the divine presence in a human person. And by virtue of that, I have been given tools that I can use in order to find out more fully and deeply God's purposes for me as I live because many of them at this point remain hidden. But I am not able to believe that I am believe in this great safety and assurance and always have to walk around on eggs because it could be pulled out from under me at a moment's notice if I do something I'm not even aware of doing that produces some great difficulty between me and God. That's an impossible way to live. It has made more people sick or crazy in our culture than just about anything else. And we need to say no to that. So, the gospel. Jesus is walking, he's in Jericho. 
the oldest city in the world, the oldest human settlement, one of them, 8,000 years. He's in Jericho, and there's a blind man who's told that he's Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. And Bartimaeus, while he's still blind, refers to Jesus by his, one of his messianic titles, Son of David. Now here's a feature of Mark's gospel. All of the unlikely people and spirits recognize Jesus. The apostles, the disciples, the ordinary people who heard Jesus in his earthly ministry, he says and does things and they're, they haven't a clue. They don't put two and two together at all. Who knows Jesus? The demons, the spirits, a blind man, for example. They recognize him. It means, of course, that Jesus has dominion over the unseen world and the seen world. And so Bartimaeus is brought to him and Jesus heals him. But Bartimaeus has the healing take effect as he follows Jesus. And you'll read in the healing stories a lot of that that happens. You follow and then you're healed. So it reminds us that healing is not always curing. It is not always returning to the status quo ante. It is beginning now to follow uh, in the way. It's a story about somebody who can't see, who sees, and people who see, who can't see. So they look and they don't see. And they have their sight. It's about a man who can't see, who has the power of discernment. My family used to use the term, I bet something called far-seeing. You know, somebody is far-seeing. They have that ability to see what other people don't. Well, how do you get that? Is that a natural thing? Is it in your DNA? Is, it the, is that the way some people have that gift more than others? And I suspect... On one level, they have it more naturally sooner for whatever reason, but everybody is able to cultivate the powers of discernment. Last week, I talked about the mystical journey, purgation, emptying, study, discipline, patience. It has to do with the ascent to God, and it really means being intentional about the spiritual life, intentional about your relationships, bearing down on your vocation in a way that allows you to pursue excellence. All of those things are ways of cultivating positive traits in you that have spiritual, emotional, and mental value for you in your life. I was thinking about this writing my sermon this week, uh, and I thought of a favorite saint of mine. He's the parish, he's the patron saint of parish priests in the Roman Catholic Church, and his name is St. John Vianney. There's a parish uh, that is dedicated to St. John Vianney in, in San Jose. He was a French priest who lived during the period of, the Napo of Napoleon. And in fact, he was a draft dodger. He ran away from uh, getting conscripted into Napoleon's army. And finally, after he got that circumstance regularized, he entered seminary. And he was a terrible student. In fact, he almost flunked out two or three times. So finally, he was able to pass out, not, you know, pass out, but 
pass out of the seminary. And the bishop, his bishop said, I'm going to put him in the parish in Ars, which is in Provence, in the south of France. And he's going to go to Ars. He can't do any harm in Ars. Right? So he goes there, and he's there for the whole of his priesthood. And he becomes a world-renowned spiritual director and confessor. You know, monarchs from other countries, people high and low came to him to make their confession, to talk with him. They say the, the curé d'Ar had the power of discernment. For example, he would be sitting in the confessional and someone would make their confession and he would then say, uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell me? And they'd say, no, Father, and then he'd tell them what they hadn't said. Ooh. <laughs> One day he got out of the confessional, there was this long line. He'd sit at the end of his life, he was sitting in the confessional 16 hours a day. He got out of the confessional, he goes down the line, and there's a woman standing in line to make a confession from another village and he says to her, you know, you should really let your daughter marry that man because he'll make her a good husband. You know, he's like, how did he know that I, you know. So one of his biographers asked him, how did you get the power of discernment? And he said, I got the power of discernment through learning Latin. I was a terrible student. I had a terrible time learning Latin. And I knew I had to learn Latin because I had to celebrate the Mass, read my office every day. It was the liturgical language of the, of the Roman Catholic Church then. And I had to know it and be able to use it. And I found that as I applied myself and absolutely struggled to learn Latin, that what came with this was the ability to discern. And I don't know how that was. Well, when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, that's true for all of us in some ways. When we learn something about, apply ourselves at one thing, it has unexpected consequences in a positive sense in another way. I've mentioned this before. Suppose you made a resolve last January that you were going to go to the gym and you were going to work out uh, all the t during the week. And you kept at it, but in the course of things, uh, you decided that you wanted to remodel your bathroom, one of your bathrooms, and that you'd do the work yourself because you knew a little bit about how to do that. So you got all the stuff, you did the tear out, and then you needed to put the sheetrock up and you discovered, boy, this is a lot easier than I thought. I can put this stuff up very easy. I haven't had the fixtures go in. And I realized, well, wait. I have been exercising since January, and my upper body strength has improved immeasurably. I never thought it would have anything to do with remodeling a bathroom. Right? So learning Latin helped one of the great saints learn the power of discernment. 
the power of insight in the cure of souls. That's what I was taught in seminary is what, what part of the ministry is. The cure of souls. So the curé is the curate in French, but he was one of the great curers of souls in the early 19th century. So this week, uh, work on your power of discernment. I bet you have more discernment than you think you, you had. Uh, give thanks for a God who loves you unconditionally and is not capricious. And give thanks for the opportunity to be part of the plan of God in the achievement of God's purposes in the world. It's part of the great mystery, you know, that this being we call God is self-sufficient. Thomas Aquinas would have called him or God thought thinking itself. Why does this being who is self-sufficient and self-contained need to move outside and to create? And what is created is called good and furthermore told you are necessary. Give thanks for being necessary. Amen.